All right, a little bit of love. Talk to you in two minutes. Oh, I'm, we should probably actually yeah, we didn't we didn't really the introduce the name of the song. In the oh, side. right, 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 right. Yeah, okay. Who should introduce it then? You say so. Here's a little bit of love. So this is a little bit of love. So <laughs> here we go. <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, writer and producer of the late 80s novelty response song, Farfisa in the Light. Ooh. I like the direction with your song. Thank you. I'm co-host Jeremy, and firstly, like... 13% of millennials. My grandfather was in the Ink Spots. You'll have to listen to our Ink Spots episode for that joke to be funny. <laughs> and to honor him, I decided to create a, a reimagining of R&B classics, but in the Baroque classical style that I'm going to call Harpsichord in the Dark. Ooh. Ooh. That sounds like it can't fail. Can I pre-order like a hundred copies? Yes. All right. There will be a hundred copies made too. <laughs> Only a hundred <laughs> copies and I will own all of them. <laughs> You'll have the market cornered. Control distribution. Well, I'm co-host Peter Cook and I don't really have any of these avenues of entrepreneurship that co-hosts Sean and Jeremy have. I'm not a player. I just pot a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and joining us today for the second time on I'd Buy That for a Dollar Two -timers Club. is a DJ and record collector based out of the great city of Philadelphia. Welcome back, Ben Johnson. Thanks. It's good to be here. Yeah, so my elemental talent I'm discovering as a member of now the Two Timers Club is conjuring up solid, overlooked R&B, jazz, and funk-oriented records recorded in California in the late 70s to be discussed on a podcast. That's quite the specific wow. talent. I'm glad we could find you. Well, what record of that ilk have you brought us today, Ben? Brenda Russell's debut album, self-titled, from 1979 on Horizon Records. Horizon? I don't think we've ever had a Horizon record on the podcast. Yeah, it was a short-lived A&M Records subsidiary that specialized in jazz, R&B, funk titles. It operated from 1976 to 1979. Wow. Your research is impeccable, mm -hmm. Sean. I look forward to this episode. Get ready. <laughs> Buckle up. <laughs> and we just learned the other big album to come out of Horizon uh, around the same time, actually, was uh, Yellow Magic Orchestra. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Well, before we dig any further into this history, where do we want to start with Brenda Russell? We are going to start with the song In the Thick of It. 
which may not be the first song on the album, but it's a great way to get started. In fact, I started my day today with this song stuck in my head, got me through a tough morning. So in the thick of it, we're looking at side A, track two. Fender Rhodes there at the beginning. Which is a keyboard. The keyboard, that really kind of plinky piano almost sounding thing going on. And I I like it, A, because it sounds really nice, but I feel like it also is similar to Brenda's voice. It's this kind of like smooth, washy sound that's just like pretty sounding and doesn't have like harsh edges to it really at all it's interesting that you say that because brenda russell is probably best known as a songwriter and was the kind of classic musician's musician where there's a lot of big artists that really respected her as a top tier songwriter and a lot of that had to do with her having this very specific distinctive style that was just all Brenda Russell. So it comes through in her voice and it comes through in her songwriting as well. All words, music, vocal arrangements, and rhythm arrangements are done by Brenda Russell on this record. Ooh, even a ranger of that wood block with a lot of echo on it. (laughs) Brilliant use of wood block. Yeah, very hands-on with this record. I actually looked at that and (laughs) uh, Think It Over was co-written by Brian. And You're Free was co-written by Andrew and Andre Fisher. But, you know, apart from that, it was literally all Brenda Russell. Correct. There are a few co-writing credits, but Brenda, Brenda is taking the lead on everything. Yep. 
I wanted to shout out a couple of the players on that song. The electric guitar is a guy named George Sopak, who doesn't have a ton of credits, but he was in an early 70s band called Rastus, who were a sort of horn-driven rock-slash-soul crossover group in the style of Chicago or Tower of Power. And then on percussion, you have a guy named Master Henry Gibson, who's a pretty legendary, prolific session percussionist, but I don't think we've talked about him much before. Some of his credits include playing on Curtis Mayfield in his song Move On Up, as well as several other records from that point. So you think about the iconic percussion sounds on Curtis Mayfield's Move On Up, that's the same guy who was on that track. Well, that accounts for how expertly that wood block was hit. Yes. <laughs> Masterfully, you could say. <laughs> yeah. Masterfully. Yes. Masterfully. Uh, you can also hear Master Henry Gibson on several classic Donny Hathaway albums, as well as our previously featured Ice Man's Band. Oh, yeah. Way back. Way back. Haven't thought about that in a minute. I'm still looking for that record. Can't find a decent, cheap copy. <laughs> oh, darn it. It's got to be out there. We said it would be. <laughs> I'll find it someday. <laughs> well, Brenda Russell, this is an artist. The general public probably knows her for a couple songs. Yeah. I don't know about the general public, but maybe some some little corners of the music industry know her for different things. But this is definitely a very underappreciated artist in general. Until now. As we always Until say. now. <laughs> the I'd buy that bump is in effect. <laughs> it's happening. How did Brenda come onto your radar, Sean? Or Ben, whoever wants to... I'll let Ben start. Ben is the selector of this record, and I was relatively unfamiliar, aside from just seeing it and you know knowing the name a little bit. So it's been a lot of fun to get into a new artist. And yeah, Ben, tell us about your experience with Brenda. You know, I think I, I, like a lot of other people, knew Piano in the Dark uh, the first time we're mentioning that tonight. I came across this record just about a year and a half ago uh, in a thrift store, and the cover looked interesting. I saw it was on Horizon. I have a couple Yellow Magic Orchestra records and kind of just a little bit familiar with the label. And pulling out the sleeve, you know, seeing all the different musicians that were players on the album, even though I didn't recognize any names or maybe a one or two, but, you know, the fact that all the songwriting and uh, and lyrics, you know, credits were under her name definitely piques your interest if that's what you're into. And, uh, yeah, so I picked it up and listened to it and was blown away by, you know, the entire album the whole the first time I went through it. It just came in uh, came into my view uh, just in, within the last two years. But, you know, it shot to the top quickly. Now, is this something you DJ with regularly, or is this more of a personal listening album? More of the uh, more of the latter. Although, you know, somebody had pointed out that uh, a track that we're not going to get to way back when actually has like a, a nice like disco kind of progression to it, which, you know, I've listened to it many times, but that I never, for whatever reason, I never heard it that way, and it actually is like a full like a full proper disco track. So tip if you want to try it way back when yeah and you can find a cool little video of two of the members of the band hot chip talking about deep cuts that were influential to them and that song way back when was something that they said they've always aspired to as songwriters and praised brenda for 
or just really interesting and engaging approach to songwriting. Uh, very creative and subtle. And like Jeremy said, has that signature element that's hard to put your finger on and even harder to recreate. Yeah, it seems that she is pretty influential. A lot of musicians cite her as a major influence, which I'm sure, you know, we'll also get into the fact that she has been heavily sampled in hip hop. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I don't think I was really familiar with her by name until a while back when you said Ben was going to come on and talk to us about this. I'm pretty sure I've heard the song Piano in the Dark while uh, browsing a grocery store or two <laughs> in my day. Yeah. So that song definitely sounded familiar. And leading up to this, there was a few playlists I've been listening to where the song A Little Bit of Love kept coming on. And I had it in my head like, I need to listen to more Brenda Russell because that song absolutely rules. So I got to agree with Ben, this whole record is really good. There's a, a really wide variety of sounds on here. It works great as a whole album package not a lot of dance music always does this one holds up as a complete listen in my opinion for me when i was first listening to this album to get ready for this episode and get more familiar with it two of the artists that i pretty early on thought that the music reminded me of shaka khan and patrice russian two recently featured artists on this show and as it turns out brenda russell has worked with both of them yeah. Yeah. Brenda and her husband, Brian Russell, wrote and produced one of the songs on Rufusized that we just recently featured. Correct. And I, I got this impression that not only is Brenda like this really respected musician's musician, but I get the impression that she's really friendly and easy to get along with. There's so many stories of her being like, oh, yeah, I met this person one time and then we you know, stayed friends the rest of our lives and like continued to collaborate. Like she seems to have made lasting impressions on people even before she had any fame or notoriety of her own. And yeah, just happening to meet Andre Fisher and then staying close enough with him to work on a track on Rufusized is a great example of that. Well, before we go too much further, do we want to play the aforementioned amazing track off of this record that uh, people may recognize from a few different places it's been sampled. Yeah. Should we say the samples before or after we listen to it? I'd say Let's after. say them before. Right. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Let's go with what the guest wants. We'll talk about them after we play this song. Perfect. So this is A Little Bit of Love, Side B, Track 1. Oh, yeah, better stop. 
first time that I was checking this album out and heard that track, I immediately wondered why I was taken back to my senior year of high school back in 1998-99, and then I realized, that's big pun, <laughs> still not a player, <laughs> which was a huge, huge song at that time, and that distinct piano loops throughout that track yeah and some people of a younger generation than peter might recognize it more from the song the way by ariana grande featuring mac miller yeah yeah that was what maybe in the last 10 years or so about that yeah yeah that song was coming out hot to begin with i i don't ever want to listen past the amount we listen though i think it was just <laughs> the right amount for me <laughs> Jeremy's strictly a first two minutes of little bit of love kind of guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, then uh, for our regular listeners, you may be aware of Jeremy's aversion to the sound of many children singing in unison and a children's choir comes in <laughs> mid track. <laughs> yeah. But to our dear listeners, don't let Jeremy the Grinch fool you. The Double Rock Baptist Junior Choir does a great job on that song and I think really elevates it. Agreed. And I also know uh, in the future, uh, in terms of finding selections to feature on this podcast, well, you know, if there's a choir, it goes up a notch. <laughs> a junior choir. Antagonistic. Yeah, wow. I don't know if I like this guest, guys. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of blows my mind is that was not a single. Yeah. Yeah, that's that baffled me when I realized that, but I mean, cause it has such a great hook to it that has clearly been commercial gold for artists who have sampled it. Yeah. And if you look at this album on Spotify, for example, that's the most played song on the album. So at this point to most people, that's the song that they would associate with Brenda Russell. But as I said, it wasn't a single. So unless you were, buying this album and you know really getting familiar with the non-hits on it people weren't really familiar with it until big pun came around and <laughs> shined yeah. a little light on it just i think that was his biggest hit oh yeah <laughs> i mean i can't think of anything that even came close the song could have been a radio single if it was three minutes in length i can't imagine where they could have pulled an extra minute out. <laughs> yeah, Jeremy just doesn't hear the commercial potential. <laughs> Not once those kids come in. No. Mm -hmm. 
want to shout out the clavinet player on this song who plays keys on a few other tracks, Ron Stockard, who was also a former member of Rufus, but at this point had been a prolific studio musician for a few years. Yeah, there seems to be a strong Rufus connection with this record. The only charting single off this album is one that we'll be hearing on the next break, a track called So Good, So Right. Yeah, thanks to hip-hop and electronic music and sampling, there's many ways to rediscover an artist. Well, I've always known everything about Brenda Russell myself, Mm -hmm. but for our audience who might not, can you fill them in? Yeah, just let me know if I get any details wrong. I know you're the expert. Okay, cool. (laughs) So here we go. Brenda Russell was born under the name Brenda Gordon on April 4th, 1949 in Brooklyn, New York. Both of Brenda's parents were musicians. It's very likely that Brenda's mother would have become a famous musician if it was maybe a little bit easier for black women of color at that point to enter the music industry. It's never been easy, but at some points it was nearly impossible. Brenda's dad was a notable singer and was a member of the band The Ink Spots. <laughs> was it was he in the lineup with any of the original members of The Ink Spots? No. <laughs> <laughs> he was in The Ink Spots in the late 50s when there was like 40 different Ink Spots bands, so I'm not sure what lineup he was a part of or if had any original members or anything, but he was in a band calling themselves the Ink Spots. Yeah, when I saw something about him leaving the group around 1960, I was like, that's not <laughs> the real <laughs> Ink Spots. Yeah, yeah. Brenda was a naturally gifted musician. Some of her earliest memories with music is being able to just walk up to a piano and pick out melodies that she had heard on songs. It was kind of an impressive party trick when she was a little kid. She never received any formal musical training, and initially when she was becoming more of a professional musician, she had a lot of doubt of her own abilities. Like, she wrote a hit song and then immediately was just like, well, I'm not actually a songwriter. I don't actually know what I'm doing. Can I repeat it? And just kind of had this moment of, no, I can do this. I'm naturally talented, and if I can do it once, I can keep doing it for the rest of my life, which is true. When Brenda was 12 years old, her family moved to Hamilton, Ontario, which means that her formative years were spent in the Canadian music scene. And one of her big breakouts was landing a role in the production of the musical Hair. Ooh, not the first person we've featured who has been in a production of Hair. Correct. I believe Melba Moore. I think Donna Summer was, too. Yeah, that was the one that came to mind. But I think you're right. I think you're right, Melba, as well. Yeah. Brenda joined the Canadian band Dr. Music in the early 70s, which is where she met her husband, Brian Russell. She took his last name. Together, they formed the songwriting team Brian and Brenda Russell, which, living on the West Coast in the early 70s, uh, she said they were often mistaken for Leon and Mary Russell, another yeah. notable interracial songwriting couple. They'd be walking down the streets and there's, you know, 
Leon and Mary Russell billboards advertising the new record in partnership and people be like, oh, I, we love your music. It's like, <laughs> I hope you do, but we're not the people you think we are. <laughs> yeah, I actually had thought about that, the, the, the Russell name. Mm-hmm. The two released two albums together under the name Brian and Brenda. Both came out on the Rocket Record Company. That's the short-lived label owned by a certain Elton John. And they were one of the only bands signed to the label. I think there was like three or four artists that had records out on there. However, neither of their albums uh, did really much anything commercially. No hits, didn't sell a lot. I figured that was the case because I saw that there weren't they weren't reissued. And I think there were only there were literally three releases of their first album. Yeah. The couple divorced in 1978, just a year before Brenda's first solo album, the one we're listening to today. As I mentioned, Brenda had befriended the musician Andre Fisher. This would have still been in the early 70s when her and her Brian were married. And together they wrote the song, Please Pardon Me, You Remind Me of a Friend, on the album Rufusized. For Rufus, feature, which yes. Andre Fisher was a part of. Exactly. So after Brenda and Brian get divorced and Brenda is starting to work on this first solo album, one of her first calls was to her friend Andre Fisher, asking him to help her figure out how to get this album out. So Andre is the producer on this record, as well as having some co-writing credits and co-arrangement credits. And according to Patrice, like one of his biggest contributions to this process was just convincing the studio musicians to respect Brenda and listen to what she had to say. There was a story of during recording this where one of the musicians like goes past Brenda to talk to Andre and was like, what do you think Brenda would think about this? And he just had to cut him off and be like, she's right there. Go ask her. <laughs> wow. Ooh. Still of that era, I guess. Yeah. So this album was released in August of 1979 and had kind of a slow build in popularity. It actually peaked in November of that year for the album charts. Its peak position was number 65 on November 17th, 1979. That week, the number one album. Anybody want to guess? Um, Donna Summer? No. The Eagles, The Long Run. Oh. <laughs> and Brenda Russell's album was just below previously featured Crusaders Street Life and Angela Bofill Angel of the Night. Oh wow. Quite the company there. The I'd buy that company. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> I guess we'll have to feature that Eagles album. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> so let's hear another song. What do you think? Yeah, let's hear another jam. All right, we're going to play the only charting song off this album, So Good, So Right. This peaked at number 30 on the Billboard Pop Charts on November 3rd, 1979. And real quick, the number one song that week was Pop Music by the band M. Ooh, classic. So here's the opening track from the album, So Good, So Right, Side A, track one.
one of those songs where you can't tell is it a ballad is it a danceable song or is it just a straight up good song you know (laughs) oftentimes it feels hard to place any of brenda's music in a box there's obviously a lot of different genre influence going on a lot of the rhythm if you listen closely you can hear strong reggae influences to the way the rhythm is arranged and how they play with a lot of space there's definitely some jazz influence. There's some disco influence. There's a lot of more ballad-heavy adult contemporary sound going on here. And that song's a perfect example. There's just so much to it, and it's a, a beautiful work of art. My head was bobbing too much to call that a ballad. <laughs> I would so agree. it wasn't a ballad. Yeah. It's like a you know yeah. mid-tempo jam. And something we don't hear as much on this this track in particular, but she has really, really creative uses of interludes within songs that, again, I don't think we saw that as much here, but I just wanted to bring that up because we hear it in basically every other song. Yeah, especially the one we played before this, A Little Bit of Love. I'm reminded on our Patrice Russian episode that our guest Lil Dave talked about his theory that Partly why Patrice Russian is so often sampled in music is that she's so good at writing little musical interludes and changes and little fresh parts of the song here and there that stand out and make for great sampling material. And I would say that Brenda Russell has the exact same strong suit to her songwriting. Yeah, I I didn't want to out the gate make the comparison to Patrice Russian, but here we are doing it over and over again um (laughs) kind of hard not to (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah yeah there's a sneaky sophistication to this that that was kind of the parallel i saw in my mind is you know how i am with lyrics but like brenda does a great job of walking that line of being relatable as love songs but also having some actual depth to the lyrics and like 
good, clever lines that make me actually able to enjoy it. Good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I don't recall hearing any, ooh, love ya babies in here. Yeah. Which is like the second most poisonous thing for Jeremy after the voice <laughs> of children. True. So there was a fair amount of guitar on that track, especially for an album that has many tracks that don't have any guitar at all. You're hearing some additional work uh, from Fred Tackett, who was a very prolific studio musician and later a member of Bob Seger's Silver Bullet Band. You're also hearing some guitar work from David Wolfert, who is most notable as a writer-arranger and co-wrote Dolly Parton's big hit Heartbreaker, as well as Eddie Murphy's Boogie in Your Butt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like you have hit oh, an oddity here for us in that this is we're over 200 episodes deep and we've talked a lot about session players and there's a lot of excellent legendary session and songwriter people involved in this yet. They're not ones that we've really covered before. They, have, they haven't really popped up on other records yeah. that we've talked about. It just goes to show you there's more music to dig. There's more names to uncover. People to give their flowers. That's what we're here for. Yeah. That's why this show will keep going till we <laughs> uh -huh. physically cannot do it anymore. Exactly. Brenda continued to keep working a lot after this record there's more solo albums to get into from here she also began doing a lot of writing and production work for other musicians right after this in 1980 she was invited to write lyrics and a little bit of music for the earth wind and fire album faces uh, her and maurice white got along so well that he brought her back for the next album raise in 1981 she also wrote and played on Patrice Russian's 1982 album, Straight From The Heart. That's the one with the big hit, Forget-Me-Nots. And she also wrote and played on Donna Summer's self-titled 1982 album, as well as many other artists. The, the list of artists that have covered her songs or that she has collaborated with, let alone sampled, is massive. This is definitely a musician of no small influence. Uh, in 1988, she had her best-selling album, her highest charting single. The album is called Get Here, and the big hit, of course, is Piano in the Dark, as well as the title track. I had thought about trying to do some kind of Dio, Rainbow in the Dark, Piano in the Dark combination joke for my intro on this, and it just didn't make sense to do that. But then in looking into how she came up with the title Piano in the Dark, it sounds like she just would often write down interesting and compelling phrases without context to them and then turn them into songs. And I yeah. thought that was <laughs> an interesting method. And so she ends up with these kind of weird themes, which probably helps make her lyrics a little more interesting to people like Jeremy Ruggles. Yeah. <laughs> I had read that when she pitched the song Piano in the Dark, it was just the title and she was asked well what does the title mean she's like i don't know yet but it's significant <laughs> <laughs> it's she wasn't wrong true real heads will know that brenda russell hit her true creative peak in 1994 when she 
contributed the song Christmas will return to the Santa Claus soundtrack. Like the Tim Allen Real heads. movie? Real heads, yes. The Tim Allen Christmas classic. Or Tim Dick for the real real heads. For the <laughs> dickheads. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> Everyone's favorite comedian who got out of jail time by ratting out his friends. Previously discussed on the podcast. <laughs> Calum's wow. Michigan related. Oh, okay. I was wondering when that would have come up. And then finally, the last piece of bio. In 2016, Brenda Russell won a Grammy after many nominations. And this was for her songwriting work on the Broadway play, The Color Purple, which she had wrote the music for about 10 years before that and then won the songwriting Grammy when a production of it was recorded and an album was released. So she is now a Grammy-winning artist. Hell yeah. About time. About Many time. years ago. Uh, real quick, I just want to shout out the last couple of musicians we haven't mentioned before. We have one bass player on this record who's a guy I'd never heard of before named Ed Brown. His big break was playing bass on Minnie Ripperton's 1975 album Adventures in Paradise. He also has a private press boogie funk record from 1988 called The Fruit of My Labors, which I highly recommend checking out. It'd be hard to find a copy, but you can listen to it online. Andre Fisher, as we mentioned, is the producer on this album and played drums on every track. And then you have Claire Fisher playing organ and doing some string arrangements. Claire was Andre's uncle, who had been an in-demand producer, arranger, and musician since the 60s, specializing in jazz. And then we have Victor Feldman on percussion and vibes, former child prodigy and studio legend with hundreds if not thousands of credits to his name and then another familiar name to this podcast ian underwood synthesizer player and former frank zappa band member yeah i've learned that he did a lot of work outside of the mothers of invention zappa's band he's he, he pops up fairly regularly especially yeah. synthesizer stuff it seems but there was probably only so many people in the professional game that could uh, do that back in the day. It was an expensive instrument, <laughs> and you had to learn a whole different approach to playing it, so it wasn't a thing that just anybody could do. Yeah. We talked a little bit about uh, the connection through sampling, and um, on this record, uh, I think it's either a co-producer or associate producer credit, uh, Brenda Dash, she didn't seem to do much. It seems like, you know, this was the first album that she worked with uh, with her on uh, and just like the first album that she was a producer, got a producer credit in general. But she actually later in the early 90s worked with Diggable Planets. So there is actually a direct connection to the, the world of hip hop, not just through sampling. Wow. Hell yeah. It looks like she continued to work with Brenda Russell throughout the 80s and early 90s as well. Well, Sean. Yeah. If we've reached the end of the bio, that means it's time to move to our next segment where you recommend us similar albums. Interesting. Is that the next segment? Yes. Did you forget? Well, as it happens, I've got three records. <laughs> First up, Phyllis Hyman, You Know How to Love Me from 1979. We have 
heard the vocal talents of Phyllis Hyman, the lead vocal talents of Phyllis Hyman, but we have not featured one of her records. Do either of you guys remember when we heard Phyllis Hyman? I'm guessing it was on the Norman Connors You Are My Starship episode. You would be correct. One gold star for Peter. Yes. <laughs> Next recommendation a husband and wife songwriting team with some great records to their name and definitely some artists that we should feature at some point. That's right. I'm talking about Ashford and Simpson and their album stay free from 1979. Ashford and Simpson. They are someone that we will probably eventually talk about on this show. It's inevitable at this point. And then my one recommendation of a previously featured episode, I highly recommend checking out Angela Bofill's Angel of the Night from 1979. Yeah, we discussed that album with Vinyl Tap 215 member Duji Imchenda. Correct. Philly's own. Well, thank you so much for those recommended similar albums, Sean. You're always doing us a favor and our listeners in, in case they can't find the specific album at hand out in the bins. Ben, we turn to you. Do you have anything that you would like to promote while you're here with us on I'd Buy That for a Dollar? Well, uh, just in the last year, since I've sort of upgraded my home studio, I've uh, been able to do some more recording and also uh, out in the field. So, um, yeah, I have a couple uh, interesting mixes that I've put up recently, including um, a mix from this past spring, mostly uh, focused on Exotica and uh, a lot of different Latin music, which you can find under my proper DJ name, which is Sound In Between. So that's on uh, my SoundCloud page. Sound In Between. Very good. Well, thank you so much, Ben, for joining us before we wrap this up and give our final thoughts and introduce our final selection, I did have a quick installment of For the Record where we set the record straight on misinformation stated in previous episodes. This particular item today, this detail is not so much misinformation so much as it is an oversight. Boy, I hope it's Gary Busey related. Oh, <laughs> you came to the right place, Jeremy. <laughs> so, on our final selection of season four, we talked about Leon Russell, Will O' the Wisp. Leon Russell came up this episode already, and last episode, he comes up a lot. <laughs> and on that record, we listed some of the drummers who performed, but we failed to draw attention to the drummer Teddy Jack Eddy. <laughs> who was listed as one of the credited drummers. Turns out it's been brought to our attention that that was Gary Busey <laughs> on drums, a friend of Leon Russell's. Yes, actor Gary Busey. And then he later became the mayor of Carmel by the Sea, right? Okay, so Sean is referencing <laughs> the fact that on our Errol Garner <laughs> Concert by the Sea episode, we brought up Clint Eastwood, but failed to mention that Clint Eastwood was at one point mayor of Carmel by the Sea. <laughs> well, it happened again. <laughs> Where the album was recorded. <laughs> it, it happened again on that episode because Gary Busey did come up 
at one point in that episode, but we didn't make the connection <laughs> that he played on the record. <laughs> the Buddy Holly story was brought up because Gaylord Sartain, who did the album artwork for the Leon Russell album, was in that film with Gary Busey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we get so close, but we just can't connect the dots sometimes. Six, yeah. six degrees of Gary Busey, huh? Yeah, exactly. So there you are. Gary Busey played drums on a previous I'd Buy That for a dollar selection, and now you know. Leon Russell. Can I just uh, throw a for the record in while we're doing this bit? Please do. On our recent Mystic Moods Orchestra episode, there's a section where we're all talking about how it's just baffling that a band would try and record a psychedelic record in 1973 and i'm sure there had to be more than a few listeners out there who were just thinking do these do these idiots completely forget about dark side of the moon which also came out in 1973 <laughs> and is pretty obviously the thing that this band is trying to rip off so there you go <laughs> on top of that sean yeah i realized mike oldfield's tubular bells also came out that year <laughs> yeah <laughs> there was a precedent <laughs> So for all of you who've been shouting at us and we can't hear it, we hear you. And and we've corrected that as well. Yeah, we're only human. We're doing the best we can over here. Well, hopefully we've done the best we can to hype up Brenda Russell for those not familiar with her. Do we have any final thoughts or before we introduce our last selection? My final thought is just Brenda Russell is great. Look for her name. She's got other records that are worth listening to and check those instrument and songwriting and production credits on the back of the record. You see Brenda Russell on there. It's it's worth checking out every time. I have just I just wanted to bring up a, a track that we listened to earlier real quick. Mm -hmm. So we talked a little bit about Brian and Brenda just a little bit, which was her, you know, her ex-husband uh, and her being together for a couple albums in the late 70s. Uh, Tower of Power actually was in a session on a track with uh, them called Life Could Be So Grand, which is from their 1977 Supersonic Lover album. And that track and I, I think the rest of the album is definitely worth worth looking into as well. Very cool can always branch out further and further and we do that's true let's go out on a nice track huh we're gonna listen to the song if only for one night which is another track on this album that didn't do a whole lot when it was initially released wasn't a single didn't chart etc but has gone on to become somewhat of a standard in the r&b adult contemporary world it has been covered many, many times. The most famous version by Luther Vandross. Ooh. I also noticed that this is one of, I believe, a couple tracks on this record arranged by Douglas Clare Fisher, uncle of Andre Fisher of Rufus. Correct. Thank you for listening to another installment of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook. My name is Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Hartman. And this is Ben Johnson. Come back again, Ben. I will as soon as I can. As soon as you find a, no a record with kids' voices on it. Yes. <laughs> or meeting all the other specified criteria that we talked about at the beginning. All right, here is If Only for One Night, Side A, Track 3.